Hey everyone, it's Tom Hoare from BNY Mellon. Welcome back to our Perspectives podcast series where we bring you the conversations that are having an impact in our financial world and beyond. Thanks for joining us again. I want to welcome you back. We have a fantastic guest today. Our guest on the podcast today is Ian Bremmer. Ian is a world-renowned political scientist and best-selling author. He's the founder of the Eurasia Group, the world's leading political risk research and consulting firm. He really is the person who's credited with bringing this craft of political risk to financial markets. And look, he's just an incredibly accomplished leader. He founded G Zero Media, which is a leading media company covering international affairs. He's the host of G Zero World with Ian Bremmer, which, by the way, you can you've probably seen on television, and you can also listen to it as a podcast. And uh, he's just a fascinating individual. He's got an amazing perspective on the world. And our conversation today is led by Akash Shah. Akash is BNY Mellon's Senior Executive Vice President and Head of Strategy and Global Client Management. And Ian and Akash have a really interesting conversation. I'm not even going to do it justice. We're going to get right into it. But one of the things that's interesting is they talk about this idea of trust. Trust is really at the core of BNY Mellon's business. It's been at the core of our heritage for more than two centuries. And it's interesting to think that trust, and in some cases, the lack of trust, is one of the core issues that's shaping our world right now. They also talk about financial inequality, financial inequality amongst nations, financial inequalities uh, here in the United States and, and with individuals. I think you're really going to enjoy this. We're going to get right to it. As always, we want to hear from you. Listen, rate, review. Uh, it matters in podcasting. Give us your feedback uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever. And as always, find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and bnymellon.com. Enjoy the episode, and we'll talk again soon. Ian, thank you so much for spending this time with us. My pleasure. Ian, maybe just to start out, what are some reasons to be optimistic in 2021? I think the biggest reason to be optimistic uh, is that we have better, more, and faster vaccines than any epidemiologist dared to even dream in 2020. And, uh, you know, this means that we're going to be able to not just get back to, you know, whatever the new normal is going to be in the United States quickly, but you've even got the Russians, the Chinese, the Indians producing vaccines that work. And, and that's from scratch in less than a year when the fastest the world had ever been able to respond to a new disease before was something like six years with mumps, right? So that, that, that's most, and that, that did not have to go so well. So that's extraordinary. The other thing that I would be most optimistic about is the fact that this coronavirus has um, supercharged the most innovative parts of the global economy, both in terms of the companies and in terms of the individuals. And obviously, the downside of that is a lot. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of scar tissue. There's a lot of people that are being left behind. But but the investment into these new technologies will create efficiencies and resources that can be used for everyone. Now, we have to deploy them well. We have to have good governance. But the opportunities will be there. You already see that moving on climate change, for example, in a way that you know, a year ago, you would have been much more pessimistic about. So there are some opportunities that come out of this, the worst crisis of our entire lifetimes uh, that I think should give us uh, some reason for hope. And, you know, Ian, we at BNY Mellon, we talk a lot about trust, right? And we aspire to be the most trusted company in financial services. 
I guess my question to you is where do you think, who and what do people trust today in our society? Unfortunately, people most easily trust people that already agree with them. Uh, this is uh, the manifestation of decades of media and now algorithms uh, that make it easy for you to like something that you already agree with and only hear and listen and consume those things. But I also believe that there is space to trust authenticity. And the only way you create authenticity is through a much deeper bond. It can't be ephemeral. You have to give people an opportunity to truly get to know you. You can't be distant. Uh, you have that, that means personal engagement. Uh, it's so much harder to do in the pandemic, but it's absolutely critical. I do think that younger people who are very tech savvy and very deeply skeptical and cynical of being fed a line uh, have a pretty good detector when something feels authentic to them and they'll respond to it. And I, I think that's going to be the future. It's not easy to do. Where do you think, though, the trust deficiency is so great that it's going to take much longer for us to repair as a society? Uh, it's government. It's media. It's the wealthy. It's a group of elites who the average human being believes has not only tolerated a rigged system, but has actively participated in the rigging of the system to ensure that equality of opportunity no longer exists. It's one thing if you're poor, but you believe that you will have a shot or your kids will have a shot. And for a long time, the United States reflected the best of that. That, that most Americans really believed that no matter how poor they were, they would end up doing better and their kids would do even better than that. And, you know, the China dream today does reflect that. It's easier to say after 40 years of on average, almost double digit growth, the average Chinese does indeed believe that they will do better than their parents and that their kids will do better than they are doing. The United States, the American dream, increasingly, the average American does not believe that it applies to them. And that is a deep misfortune for the world's wealthiest and most powerful country. And something that will take, it took us a long time to slip into this. It will take us a long time to fix this. And Ian, are we already in a new Cold War? No. No. We are not. Um, and hopefully we can avoid one. We're not in a new Cold War because the United States and China have economies that are deeply interdependent. We are both aware of the depth of that interdependence. And there are very strong entrenched interests in both countries that benefit from ensuring that that is not disrupted. 
So if you ask me in 10 years time, if you go to a Walmart, will you still be buying goods that are made in China? The answer is yes. If you go to a university in the middle of the country, will you still have Chinese students coming and paying full freight tuition? The answer is yes. Will the NBA still believe that the future of their fan base and people buying merchandise and even perhaps talent for, ta for t NBA teams is in China? Yes. Those things are not going to change. And there are very strong reasons that they should not change. Now, there's no trust between the two countries, and that's a problem. And there is a decoupling that is happening between the two countries, particularly when it comes to tech. I mean, if you're Facebook, you don't, you can't invest in China. The world's largest data market is not open to you. And increasingly, the United States is not open for Chinese tech investment. And we've seen those trends in FDI, and we're telling our allies, don't you dare, or there will be consequences. And that is a problem. And so we might well be in a technology cold war with the Chinese right now, but there is absolutely not a real cold war. And finally, I would say that both American and Chinese foreign policy establishments understand that it would be a deep strategic failing if we were to end up in a cold war with each other. And that, that's very important. And the fact that Biden's first phone call with the Chinese president that just occurred was two hours long because he understands the nature of the danger of a cold war with the Chinese for American national security, for American prosperity, for American sustainability. But when you think about, you mentioned Facebook, do you think there will be a moment where Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and others will be welcome in the Chinese economy? Or do you think that ship has sailed? For that, the foreseeable the future, I think the answer is no. Because China understands that their control of the data space, their ability to filter it, to surveil it, to shape it, to direct it, to motivate human behavior. In the United States, Google's interest in doing that is to maximize profitability. In China, it's to actually shape patriotic behavior which ensures greater political stability and prevents political instability, which is the top priority for these companies and the government. China's a state capitalist system. The United States is not. Uh, as long as that remains the case and it's core to the present Chinese system, I think that companies like Facebook and Google will be deeply circumscribed in their ability to operate in China. So maybe stepping away from geopolitical events and talking about their impact on the financial system, for example, uh, maybe let's start with stimulus packages around the world. And where do you think it's really going to net out to over the course of this this year, along with what you described, vaccinations and hopefully some return to normalcy uh, at the back end of the year? Uh, unlike on the healthcare side, uh, where there were radically different approaches, some very effective, some incredibly ineffective, including in the United States on healthcare in coronavirus. The economic responses have been largely uh, very significant um, and not coordinated, but aligned. I mean, even with the United States as polarized as it is, 
we had 10% of GDP that came to everybody real fast. And that prevented a lot of damage, frankly. I think the U.S. fiscal response and the central bank response was fast and very effective. And I, I think that will continue um, in the Biden administration. And that $1.9 trillion and everybody on the Dem side thinks Jay Powell's also doing a pretty good job. I mean, you know, that, all of that is aligned. The Europeans are basically doing a Marshall Plan uh, where the wealthy countries are facilitating a massive amount of long-term investment uh, into the poorer countries in the South and in the East. And now that Super Mario, uh, Mario Draghi, is going to be taking over Italy, you have an techn incredible technocratic government with a lot of credibility across the continent that actually is governing in a surplus as opposed to in a deficit. I mean, that's, that's, that's a dream environment, right? I mean, the Japanese, not as big, but still significant. The Chinese, not as big, still significant. I think your problems as we go towards the end of 2021 and 2022 is in the medium and lower income economies who have nowhere near the flexibility and credit may be tighter. Their ability to go to market may be more challenging. I do worry about a country like Turkey in that environment. I do worry uh, about some of the countries that were reliant, are reliant on the largesse of the Gulf oil producers who are under a lot of stress right now. So Lebanon or Iraq will be under a lot more pressure in that environment. Nigeria under a lot more pressure in that environment. Can the Argentinians get another IMF deal done in this environment? Those are the challenges I would watch out for. And you know, one of the things we remark on is the resilience of the banking system throughout this past year, right? There were some dark days in March, but overall, global capital markets continue to, to function. And then we had GameStop over the last couple of weeks. Question to you, do you think this is a signal of more real reform to come in retail investing, or do you think this was a blip on the screen? It's not a blip in the sense that it reflects a real anger in the United States that the little guy is taken advantage of. Because, I mean, if it wasn't for that reality, that underlying reality, GameStop is not such a big deal. You're talking about a bunch of market participants using a, a platform in a new and an unanticipated way the regulatory environment worked the way it was supposed to. Um, GameStop uh, had to, you know, was suspended because Robinhood needed to go and raise collateral, which they did. And then trading continued and prices went back um, to closer to normal. I mean, that's not, LTCM was a much bigger example of how these things can go desperately wrong and their responses. But it's not like that didn't suddenly change the way we think about the marketplace in the United States. You, you respond to new technologies and, 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 and new ways of doing business. But, but I think, look, I, I think that there is a problem. And I think that reflects a much deeper problem in the United States right now, that a lot of, we talk about trust, a lot of really wealthy people are acting as if um, it's God-given and they don't have responsibility 
for the problems. And, and we need to stop punching down in this country. And we need to start treating our fellow citizens as our fellow citizens. That, that's the problem. These are symptoms of decades of an American system that has forgotten about the average American. The GameStop is fundamentally an articulation of that problem. No, Ian, I, I think that inequality and fundamental divide between wealth creation through asset growth versus wealth creation through income growth feels like one of the fundamental challenges of our time because the former favors a very small group of people. The latter has left behind a lot of people, and we've done very little to correct for it in the past decade. Do, do you foresee real structural programs to you know, close income inequality, particularly in the United States? Do you think uh, we're going to get that through? I think we are going to see some programs, but we need to understand that the problem is accelerating so greatly uh, because uh, the role of technology in society is displacing so many jobs and also is making um, uh, so many jobs gigified. And this is not just about um, people that are working with their hands in manufacturing. It's also about professional services, too. And so, uh, I mean, I'm seeing experiments. Look, I think the country is aware it's a problem. I, I, I think that it is now, this has really entered the national debate and is not going to go away in a way that it did go away after the 2008 financial crisis. We talked about Occupy Wall Street for a while, and then we stopped. This is not going to go away. But I think the fixes are still happening in a small way in some cities, in some states, in some corporations. But that's very different from is the United States going to be capable of addressing this? And, you know, I have to say, so I grew up in the projects, right? I mean, my, my mom didn't finish high school. My dad was an enlisted man from the Army, 22 years in the Army. Um, I, I got out right? Uh, because of my mom and my brother got out, but none of the other kids did. And I, I worry that if you give me the same opportunities today, I wouldn't have been able to. And I think too many of the people that are making these decisions today do not have that experience. We have this fundamental divide in the country and it's about the economy, but it's also about status. And neither of those things get fixed unless we start engaging with each other in a more human way, in a more kind way, uh, in a more civil way. And what we see happening in the United States right now is civil society is actually breaking down. And that's, in a sense, much more structural and worse than what we saw in the Capitol on January 6th or with the elections last November. This is this is the deep problem because what makes America so unique and extraordinary and great are the values. It's civil society. It's the reason why we won the Cold War. It's the reason why the wall came down. It's the reason why the Soviet Union collapsed because our ideas were better than theirs. And we're no longer living up to those. And that is largely perceived to be the fault of 
a small number of incredibly well-connected, powerful, and wealthy Americans who have managed to capture the regulatory process and express indifference to those that have not. Well, Ian, we, by the very nature that we're having this conversation, we belong to those elites. And I, I wonder, what are things that we should be doing differently starting today? to make sure that we build a more fair and just uh, economic system, which will also be a more fair and just uh, political and, and other systems as well. We have to support more structural redistribution. Um, and I'm not suggesting this means, you know, a wealth tax on everybody that drives people out of the country or whatnot. I, there are lots of modalities to look at it, but the reality is that the average American's lifespan is going down right now. And it's depression and it's opioid addiction and it's type two diabetes and it's, you know, it's ennui. Um, and, and that means we have to invest massively into infrastructure and education and social services for people that are being left behind at staggering rates accelerating with the coronavirus. And the 1.9 trillion is nice for a few months, but these are not structural fixes. Now, I'm perfectly fine if that's deficit spending, because as long as it's deficit spending that's investing in human capital that we make a return on in the long term, that's fine. I'm, I'm fine with it being increased taxation. I'm fine with, there are lots of ways to do this, but we need to do this. And these are these are not marginal small investments. These are big fundamental investments. So Ian, on a closing note, what are the what are the data signals that you are going to look at this year to know that as an economy, as a society, we're heading hopefully in the right direction? What are the things you, you look at most closely? Well, I mean, the problem is that we are heading in the right direction in many ways, right? And so one of the reasons why we're unlikely to fix this is because the markets are doing well. And the markets are doing well because U.S. corporations are incredibly innovative and productive, even without an awful lot of labor. And that is going to grow. So, I mean, when you ask about what do I think about the U.S. economy, I'm still investing in the U.S. economy. I mean... Absolutely. And I believe in New York City as the most extraordinary repository of global talent, a first tier global city that everyone wants to be in. So it's not like I'm saying I think the United States is suddenly going to be a bad investment. The dollar is going to fall apart. Not at all. But that's a very different question than are we going to start dealing with these fundamental divides. The United States today despite being by far the most powerful country in the world, is also by far the most politically dysfunctional and divided of all of the advanced industrial economies. Both of those things are true at the same time, which is why on January 6th, during this insurrection that is extraordinary to watch, we also had market records in the United States on the same day. So that that that's the point. The point is that we have to be focusing on both of those things. We can't just focus on one of those. Well, Ian, I want to thank you. Uh, Ian Bremer, president and founder of the Eurasia Group. Thank you so much for our conversation today and look forward to many more. My pleasure, man. Good talking to you. Right, thanks. Bye. Hey, everyone. Tom here again. 
Thanks again for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, uh, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, if you're willing, leave a review or a rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and bnymelon.com. Thanks again for joining. We'll see you on the next episode. 